Heinz Feen on High Places, Christian Allegory, story about much afraid, uh, a shepherdess employed in the, uh, by the great shepherds, very, very similar to um, uh, Pilgrim's Progress, if you remember that book. Anyway, much afraid, though she is a, a shepherdess in the employ of the great shepherd, she longs to accompany that great shepherd up to the high places, to the, the craggy mountains where he would leap with feet like a hind. And yet she has a problem because much afraid is crippled. Uh, she's both crippled physically, uh, she's got deformity in her face, and her feet are crippled as well. But she also has this paralyzing fear, and so she's crippled emotionally. There's no courage. Yes, she wants to be there with the shepherd. She wants to be able to do things that he does. She wants to experience love. She wants to, 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 to be changed. And yet she has no courage. I start thinking about my own life and the, the life of those who come here to this church. I, I think we all want courage. We all want courage to face life's difficult times, the problems, the issues, the circumstances that are going to come our way. Uh, aren't we looking for courage to face an unknown future, a, a new career, a new life? Don't we want courage to face hardship and grief or a sense of failure? We want courage to face the current situation that we're in. Maybe it's a, a situation that's filled with conflict or, or maybe just boredom. Maybe we're just staring at ourselves in the mirror saying, if I only had the courage to face this, if only I had the courage now, this matters this morning because the world has no shortage of options of where to look to get courage. Our, our culture right now will tell you that if you want courage, just tell yourself, I'm the bravest individual I have ever met. And then they give you some psychobabble, and they want you to go pick up all these self-help books. And then... You start to look in spiritual places and you get all these platitudes of the health and wealth gospel crowd that's going to tell you that if you would just be courageous for God, He'll take away all your fears. He'll bring you peace. He'll get rid of all of your struggles. There's a problem. The problem is this. I know too many of you here today, believers, who are going through hell on earth right now. A lot of you have shared stories with me recently about incredibly tough times. I've heard from people who are strained, who are drained, who are pained, who are chained, who are stained. These people are going through life living out their faith, yes, but not finding easy answers to the crud that they're experiencing. Well, if they were just more spiritual, right? If they would just have more faith and you wouldn't be afraid, you wouldn't be stressed out. Really? Really? What was happening to Jesus physically when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane? Right before he'd be arrested and tried and beaten and crucified? Yes, he was praying. He had faith. But what was going on physically with him? Sweat drops of blood. How stressed do you have to be? 
in order for the capillaries that are right underneath your skin to burst so that blood literally drains out of your pores. Come on, Jesus, just have faith. Just have faith. That's all you need. Everything will be fine then. I was just part of a show in Bend. It was called Newsies. And in Newsies, they had an amazing song with an amazing lyric that went like this. Courage will not erase our fears. Courage is when we face our fears. See, courage would not exist without fear. If you were not afraid, you would not need courage. Courage is taking action while being afraid. Courage is demonstrating a kind of deep faith that cannot be put on a plaque or a poster or a Christian uh, coffee mug. In fact, it's inexpressible. Where do you get that kind of courage? That's what I want to know. I, I believe as we are now in the book of Acts, almost towards the end now, there's 28 chapters in Acts. We are in chapter 23 right now. I believe that where we are right now in Acts 23, it's the perfect, perfect chapter perfect passage because it will give us a direction in which to head to find courage. From here on out, Paul is going to be essentially finished up with his free will mission work by chapter 23. Now any kind of evangelism that he's going to do is going to have to take place in prison. And, and it's going to have to take place through the efforts of other people to whom Paul has given the baton. And if there's going to be any encouragement to the churches, it's not going to happen face to face. It's going to be happening through letters. And I'm grateful that God actually used this time because that's where we get 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. A lot of our New Testament comes from those times where Paul was in prison. Now, if you remember from a couple of weeks ago, Paul has purposed in his heart to head to Jerusalem. And whether or not that was God's will, he now finds himself in what my sister uh, calls deep yogurt. Okay? Oh, you're in deep yogurt now. He's been falsely accused by the Jews of profaning the temple and the law of Moses. He's been arrested after a riot breaks out. Rome doesn't know what to do with him. And so they bring in the Jewish religious leaders to help make sense of why this guy bugs the Jewish community so much. And so Paul finds himself between a, a rock, the Roman government, and a hard place, the Jewish religious leaders. And he's in the, uh, he's in the middle of a storm. Let's look at that storm that's raging around him. Um, actually, I want to start with uh, chapter 22, verse 30. And uh, going through chapter 23. Luke says, The next day, once the commander wanted, uh, since the commander wanted to find out exactly why Paul was being accused by the Jews, he released him and ordered the chief priests and all the Sanhedrin, that was the Jewish ruling council, by the way, uh, to assemble. And then he brought Paul and had him stand before them. Now Paul looked straight at the Sanhedrin and said, My brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. Now at this point, the high priest Ananias ordered those standing near Paul to strike him on the mouth. This is not just one guy hitting Paul. Paul's already been beat up. Now he's got a lot of people around him and the high priest tells them to strike him on the mouth. He is literally blanketed right now. 
okay? Then Paul said to him, the high priest Ananias, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. You sit there to judge me according to the law, yet you yourself violate the law by commanding that I be struck. Those who were standing near Paul said, You dare to insult God's high priest? Paul replied, Brothers, I did not realize that he was the high priest, for it is written, Do not speak evil about the ruler of your people. And then Paul, knowing that some of them were Sadducees and others were Pharisees, those were two political parties in the Jewish religious system, he called out in the Sanhedrin, My brothers, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. I stand on trial because of my hope in the resurrection of the dead. And when he said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. You see, the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection. And that there are no, neither angels nor spirits, but the Pharisees acknowledged them all. There was a great uproar, and some of the teachers of the law who were Pharisees stood up and argued vigorously, We find nothing wrong with this man, they said. What if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him? The dispute became so violent, check this out, that, that the commander was afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them. And he ordered the troops to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him into the barracks. Now, don't make the mistake ever of thinking that Paul, going through all the stuff that he goes through, is just really calm. Hmm. Yes, I know I'm being beaten. I know, I know there's a lot of problems going on. I know I've been uh, put in jail, but it's all good. I'm the Apostle Paul. He's human. Remember? Do you see his emotion here? Paul has snapped. Do you remember back there in verse 3? He says, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall, calling this guy a hypocrite. Whoa. Paul, what, what, what about turning the other cheek? Okay, buddy? Um, you sound a little angry. Why do we think God is offended at our emotions? Do you really think that God is not big enough to handle the times when we sometimes lash out at him and express anger? Job, Habakkuk, Jonah, Moses, Abraham, the writers of the Psalms, they all express frustration. They all express anger at some times in their relationship with God. The sense of how could you? And though God will always show ultimate authority, and ultimate providence, there's this sense that he actually will, he's willing to engage with those who are angry at him. He allows Jacob to wrestle with him. He allows Abraham to try to talk him out of a pronounced judgment against Sodom and Gomorrah. He's patient with Job. He's patient with Habakkuk who question his ways. He's merciful to Jonah who can't understand God's sense of justice. Paul is angry. You would have been too. I think you have been angry at God. Some of you are angry at God right now. Where's God? Why is he letting this injustice happen to me at work? Why does he allow me to have 24-7 pain and not take it away? Why can't he do something about the hurt that my child is going through right now? 
Why can't I catch a break? Now, now the, the beauty about this part of the story is this. Paul, number one, is showing human emotion. Yes, he has snapped. But number two, he doesn't allow the emotions to rage out of control. Okay? There, there's, he doesn't let the emotions take over. In fact, when Paul learns that the man that he just cursed is actually the high priest, guess what? He shows a sense of reverence for God and for the sacred things of God. Yes, I'm mad. I may even be mad at God. But there's still this profound sense of reverence and honor and fear for the one who is over all and who holds my life in his hands. Strained? Drained, pained, chained, stained. Where are you today? I know many of you are somewhere in those descriptions. Do you, do you know that today God actually has a word for you? But not a platitude, not just a pat answer, because I can't give you the reason why you're going through what you're going through. In fact, Troy and I were talking about that question, why? It's kind of a dumb question. We, we want to know why. Why, God? Why is this happening to me? I, I actually, th- why, why do bad things happen to good people? Why do good things happen to bad people? Why does God allow these things to happen? Remember what our conclusion was? Even if we did know why, would it make a difference? Would it make a difference if you knew that your suffering right now led to a life being saved in India. Now, don't get me wrong. That should give you a sense of encouragement. But sometimes, at least for me, that can become kind of hollow. Like saying, well, you know, your loved one who passed away is in a better place. Well, that's great. I know that. I know that. But guess what? I don't want them in the better place. I want them here with me now. Can we be real today? Platitudes don't work. Pat answers will actually drive people away from God sometimes because we attach these easy answers to God when there are no easy answers. The answers sometimes are just not true. When you feel like your life is in danger, when you have no idea what's going to happen at work, when you literally do not know when the pain is going to end. So what's the answer to all of those times? Well, what's the answer to the discouragement that we will all face at some time as believers? I want you to tattoo Acts 23.11 to your brain, if you will. Look at this. this. This is God's answer. The following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, Take courage. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. Two things I want you to see today. First of all, I want you to see that this is a matter of position. Where is the Lord? He is standing near Paul. Now, God is not doing it for Paul. He's not getting in there and saying, oh, don't worry about it, Paul. I'll take care of everything. Just get in the back seat. Everything will be great. But he's there. He's there if Paul needed him. You know, when my kids were little, 
There were things that I would make them do because I knew that that would build into them character and confidence. Things that they didn't want to do, but I made them do. Now, it, it wouldn't do me any good to just do it for them, right? Ah, no, no, don't, don't worry about that homework. I got it. <laughs> Anymore, not so much. But if I didn't let them go through it, I wouldn't be a good parent. Now, now, of course, there are certain things that you don't have your kids go through or deal with because it would uh, overwhelm them at that point of their life if they did it on their own. But let me tell you this. There are times that God will give you more than you can handle. Trey, I saw a poster one time that says, God's not going to give me more than I can handle. The, the, the person who can show me that in the Bible... I will give you a lot of money because it ain't there. In the Bible, it does say that God will not let us be tempted beyond what we can handle, but he gives us more than we can handle all the time. And there, he does that so that we can learn to trust him to show up to be our strength. Even Paul admitted this in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. He, he wrote these words. He says, we don't want you to be unaware of the affliction that we experienced while we were in Asia. We were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. This is Paul, the apostle, saying that he couldn't handle Asia. Indeed, we felt that we had the death sentence on us. But it was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. More than he could handle. Why? So that God could handle it. So yeah, there are times that God's going to step in. I promise you that God will come in, step in miraculously and change things. But there are times when God, like a good parent, will actually walk us through it. To develop something inside of us that would never have been there before had we not gone through the trial. But here's where the matter of position comes into play. Because just like when you're teaching your kid how to swim, you got to be there for them. Yeah, I hear, sorry, it just, it just came to my mind. Uh, I saw a movie one time that I, a guy was talking about his absent father. He says sometimes he would throw me up in the air. He wouldn't be there when I came down, but that's, you know... Sorry, it just, it just came to me. But, you, you know, whenever I required my kids to do something out of their comfort zone, I don't mind being there with them when they're going through that, just in case, you know? They, they, they need to know that as they are obeying me, as they're stepping forward in obedience, I haven't abandoned them. I'm the safety net. They don't even need to call out to me. I know what's going on. I'm, I'm watching the situation very clearly. I'm ready to step in when I need to. So when you're teaching your kids to swim, sometimes you got to let them swim. And sometimes you go, okay, 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 I'm here. I'm here. I'm not going to let you drown. Quoting Jesus. Well, then if you, though you are a good parent, know how to be a good parent, though you are sinful then how much more would our Heavenly Father, who is not sinful, who is perfect, know how to give good gifts to you? He's going to be there. He is near, no matter what you're going through. There's a reason that, that Jesus tagged a promise onto the Great Commission. We tend to focus in on the Great Commission, right? Go and make disciples of all nations. We've got a job to do, to spread the good news to, to, to the world. 
But for many people, that task is the great big commission. Like, I can't do that on my own. And so Jesus said, oh, I tell you what, I need you to go do that. And then in Matthew 28, 20, and I will be with you. Even until the end of it all. The Roman centurion here in Acts 23 literally was so afraid that the rioters were going to literally tear Paul to pieces. That he knew he had to do something. I mean, this is a military man, military guy, who says, man, I don't think, let's arrest Paul so that we can keep him safe. Are you telling me that Paul's not distressed? He had to have been discouraged. He had to have been disheartened and full of fear. Why? Because God's message to him was this. Take courage. That means he wasn't there. He wasn't there. He wasn't being courageous. He needed this word from God. Take courage. And so, just like my father would do in so many occasions, God made his presence known to Paul. And there's a sense of encouragement as Paul knew that he did not have to face this alone. Second of all, it's a matter of perception. A matter of perception. What was the message? You will get to Rome. Yeah, your Jerusalem that you're in right now may seem like a death sentence. Like you're going to die. Like you're not going to be able to get out of Jerusalem. But God says, no, 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 no. This is not the end. You're going to get to Rome. Oh, there's no place like Rome, they say. Why do you laugh, Brock? Well, that, doesn't that sound like a, another line you might be familiar with? There's a story out there, right, where this little girl um, was on a journey and she had to come around to the realization that there really is no place like home. And for her, the whole story was an exercise in learning a new perspective. Okay? I believe that's exactly what we're talking about here. When God shows up, in this vision in verse 11, he challenges Paul to say, listen, there's a new perspective that I want you to have on your life, on your ministry, and everything. And in Paul's life, though Jerusalem is threatening, Rome is waiting. There will be an end to this craziness. There is an end. The end is Rome, which is God's appointed place. The lesson is there is no place like where God wants you and where God will take you. There is no place like Rome. Now that doesn't mean that you're automatically going to get a new spouse or a new job or a new promotion or a, a pain-free existence if you would only just trust him. Some people actually think that that's what Paul meant in Romans 8 28 when he says, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purposes. Yes, he means it for our good, but do you see that it's in light of his purposes are good in light of his purposes. So at times, God does restore lost things to people, but not always. At times, God does miraculously touch and bring a miraculous healing to people, but not always. Paul himself would go through a particular struggle. We don't know exactly what it was, but he begged God to take it away from him. But God said, no. God said, no. How's that for your theology? God said, no. 
2 Corinthians chapter 12. He says, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me, this problem, this thorn in my side. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, the conclusion for Paul is, I will boast then all the more greatly about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest more and more and more and more on me. So does your struggle negate God's power? Not in Paul's perspective. The way that Paul saw it, his struggle was a, an opportunity for God to do something amazing. Amazing. If your theology demands that God has to do it your way for your comfort, then the enemy has set you up for divine disappointment. And you will be disappointed with God. But let me tell you, that system is not biblical at all. While God does work with us, and through us, and in us, ultimately God is sovereign, and He will gain the glory and will show His power. So Paul gets it. He gets it. He goes, okay, I, I get this one, God. I've, I've learned it. So now God makes everything right. Right? Oh, no. Not even close. Uh, look what happens next. Verse 12. The next morning, the Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves with an oath not to eat or drink until they had killed Paul. Oh, boy. <laughs> More than 40 men were involved in this plot. They, they went to the chief priests and elders and said, we have taken a solemn oath not to eat anything until we've killed Paul. Now then, you and the Sanhedrin petitioned the commander to bring him before you on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about his case, and we are ready to kill him before he gets there. Paul can't catch a break. But in the middle of the storm, God shows up and works in the most unorthodox way possible. He uses a middle schooler and an opposing army. He uses a middle schooler and an opposing army. Where are my middle schoolers today? They're not here. They must all be hunting or something. I've, there's a middle schooler back there. Listen up. Uh, Verse 16. Uh, let's see. Uh, but when the son of Paul's sister heard of this plot, this is Paul's nephew, he went into the barracks and told Paul. Then Paul called one of the centurions and said, take this young man to the commander. He has something to tell him. So he took him to the commander and the centurion said, Paul the prisoner sent for me, asked me to bring this young man to you because he has something to tell you. And the commander took the young man by the hand, drew him aside and said, what, do you, what is it you have to tell me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul before the Sanhedrin tomorrow on the pretext of wanting more accurate information. Don't give in to them because more than 40 of them are waiting in ambush for him. They've taken an oath not to eat or drink until they've killed him and they're ready now waiting for your consent to their request. The commander dismissed the young man and cautioned him, don't tell anyone that you've reported this to me. And then he called two of his centurions and ordered them, get ready a detachment of 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at nine tonight, provide mounts for Paul so that he may be taken safely to Governor Felix. Who would have thunk that God would have used a preteen and the Roman army? Basically, Paul is traveling to Rome on the government's dime. <laughs> God says, I'm going to get you to Rome. And it's not going to, all expense paid by, by the government. 
Who would have thunk that God would have used a young person and an opposing government to spread the gospel to a pagan world? Here's, here's the lesson of Acts 23. God never panicked. There, there, there's a song that we learned in VBS last year, uh, 2018. It was called The Eye of the Storm. And one of the, the lyrics is, In the eye of the storm, you remain in control. And in the middle of the war, you guard my soul. You alone are my anchor when my sail is torn. Your love surrounds me in the eye of the storm. Paul heads right into the hurricane and doesn't flinch because God never flinched. You know why God never flinched? Because he's God. He's in control. He knows what's going to happen. We may not like the door that he asks us to go through. We might not like what he's doing or not doing, but we can never, ever, ever forget that he is in control. And even if it meant death, Paul was trusting God. Philippians 1, 21. For me to live is Christ and to die? Huh, go ahead. Take it away from me. Guess what? It's all gain. I'm not going to fear. What a different perspective than what is expected. God has a plan. And the, the question is, is did Paul trust God with that plan? He's going to have to go through a whole lot more. Snake bites, shipwrecks, jail. Trial after trial after trial after trial. I, I begin talking about Heinz feet on high places. On her journey to the high places, much afraid was given two companions, sorrow and suffering. She broke down. Why would the shepherd choose such frightening companions for her? Why couldn't he give her joy and peace? But the shepherd smiled and said, do you trust me? And she said, I do. And her companions, though imposing, were of great help to her. At times, the road that she was on actually made a sharp turn away from the high places and, and led her through a desolate valley, and she broke down. Why would the shepherd mislead her by promising her something that was now out of reach? And the shepherd came and smiled, asked her, do you trust me? And she said, I do. And the path that she traveled down kept strengthening her and would eventually turn back to her desired destination. And now she was full of strength that she didn't have before. And, and that love that she was craving. The shepherd then asked her if she would be willing to give everything up, even that love. By this time, though it seemed to go against everything that she had desired, much afraid, told the shepherd she was willing to let it go if that's what he wanted of her. And as she gave it up, there's a transformation that happens. And much afraid realizes her true identity. She is now renamed Grace and Glory. She now has the ability to leap with the shepherd with Hind's feet on high places, no longer crippled. But not only that, her eyes were open to see that her two traveling companions, sorrow and suffering, they had also been transformed into their true identities, joy and peace. The, the, the very people that she had wanted the shepherd to give to her at the very beginning. Hard stuff, folks. Hard stuff. 
not fun, but always in the control of our good shepherd. And though our journey will have twists and turns, those we will find are necessary in God's plan in order to make those who are going to trust him with their lives finally become the people he wants them to be, living in the place that he designed them to live, doing the things he designed them to do. That's Rome, church. That's God's place for us. But it takes us truly trusting that no matter how it feels, there is the reality of God's presence and God's perspective. But with that kind of faith, folks, there's really truly no place like Rome because that's actually where the Father's will is ultimately realized through our struggles, through our victories, through our pain, through our relief, and whatever we're going through, God won't waste that hurt, but will redeem the struggle for His glory.